I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Faye Jones, who is the Conservative Parliamentary Candidate for Brecon and Radnorshire. Faye, where were you brought up? Uh, North Cardiff. Born in the University Hospital and spent the first three months of my life in Rabina and then Lisbane and uh, that's where my parents still live. Uh, I went to Flemishan High School so I'm a, I'm a North Cardiff girl. I uh, often say in these podcasts, um, do you come from a political family? But it's not really necessary <laughs> in your case because your father was, of course, the MP for Cardiff North, Gwilym Jones, and he was also a minister at the um, Welsh office. Yeah. So how early in your life did you become aware of politics and what did you make of it? I think, obviously, the 1997 general election when Dad lost his seat was the moment that I really became aware of what it was all about but I grew up as you say in in a household full of politics but I didn't know it was politics I just knew it as community and family and friendship um I grew up within the conservative party and and honestly some of my happiest childhood memories revolve around the conservative party in North Cardiff you know I remember going to Christmas parties in the county conservative club on Caffilly Road and it was genuinely so much fun um because it was a really positive vibrant place with loads of young people and loads of really kind, lovely people who just helped to bring me up in many ways. So I didn't really understand that it was a political environment until it was brought into very sharp relief when Dad lost his seat in 1997. I have a very clear memory of, of May the 1st, or rather May, May, the, May the 2nd. May the 1st, night. 1997 I actually had detention at school that day for turning in my homework late uh, a couple too many times and I thought oh god how am I going to tell my parents? How old were you at the time? Uh, I was 12 and I was in uh, high school in in clinician and yeah I'd had this detention after school and I thought well how do I tell my parents that you know I'm going to be a bit late home from school so fortunately they had other things on their mind that day so they didn't actually worry about it too much. But I remember then later that night, the house was full of people and I'd been told to go to bed, obviously didn't, and and crept downstairs to see what was going on and and sat watching the TV. And very weirdly, I fell asleep, but woke up and the first thing I saw on the screen was the the banner that flashed up saying Cardiff North Labour Game. And I remember being very upset and lots of people coming back to the house and my auntie Carolyn, who was my dad's secretary, burst into tears because she dropped a plate of sandwiches and it was it was a very weird night um so I think from that moment on I sort of realized that you know this was a very serious thing that my dad had been involved in and and things were always going to be really different after that so how did the family's ability to make a living etc change after he lost his seat well suddenly dad was around all the time I got used to the rhythm of dad just not being home between say Sunday to Thursday night I just I don't really have that many memories of of dad when I was when I was really young except some really obvious things like the school nativity play dad couldn't come because it was on a Tuesday and a, a Wednesday night so obviously he was in Westminster so he made arrangements to come to the school dress rehearsal and I remember being a yeah being being in the play and seeing the school full of pupils and my dad on his own, at the back, sat watching the play. Um, So I got used to Dad just not being around, and then suddenly he was there all the time. And I think there was a certain sort of re-entry adjustment. You know, suddenly my mum just had him hanging around the house all this time. 
But they eventually found their feet after a, a few months of sort of soul searching and not really knowing what was going on. I, again, I was too young to really understand, but I know a lot of people are quite worried about dad because it, it was just a big change, you know, and it is for any member of parliament or any assembly member when they lose their seat, it's a huge adjustment. But eventually, yeah, they started to work out what they were going to do. They bought a post office just north of Caerphilly, which was a really interesting project for them. Again, it put them right at the heart of the community, which is something that they are, you know, that they've always enjoyed being involved in. You know, it was a long, long, long project, a lot of hard work, a lot of hours, a lot of difficult issues to deal with. And I think after three or four years, they sold that up and, and moved on to something else. And, and then Dad looked at sort of smaller projects that he could get involved in. He worked in an estate agency in, in Rabina, went into partnership there for a little while. And then I think he realised, right, enough's enough. But, um, yeah, it was a strange time. You're in school. You go, you're in secondary school. You're in uh, Clinician High School. Mm. Did your political interests develop when you were at school? Um, yes, I was very interested in politics and very interested in, in, in ways in which I could change things. But I didn't know what I was doing, and I was probably horribly precocious and quite irritating, I should imagine, when I was a teenager. I remember joining the Conservatives when I was 16, and at the same time I was on the school council and, and I think I was prefect or something like that. So I sort of maybe showed early signs of wanting to wanting to help change things. But it took a long time for me to really work out that this was something I wanted to do. I can't really tell you why, just because probably I'd seen my dad do it and I didn't want everyone to think, oh, she's doing that because that's her dad. I wanted to go and do something else, which is why I you know, went away to university and studied completely different things and worked in completely different fields. But What university did you go to? King's College in, in London. Ah, yes. Yeah. Right so in the thick of it. Right in the thick of it, which was great fun. I had all my lectures on the Strand and I you know, got to know London incredibly well and I'm really pleased that I can still walk from one end of Zone 1 to the other without really looking at a map. That's always made me really proud. What did you uh, read at university? French. French, Fre- French and German. But we were allowed to give up German after the second year because I just I couldn't handle the two languages it was so they were so they were so difficult it was, a, it was a really interesting degree but it was very literary so it was reading an awful lot of books and then studying ideas and and, and social social themes through the literature of, of 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 whatever period it was so it was an absolutely fascinating course I loved it because um, France has um, a tradition of public intellectuals in yeah. a way that we don't. Exactly, exactly that. And, you know, ideas that we talk about now, I think France has been talking about for centuries. So the the, the notions of, of, of feminism and queer theory that we all talk about now, you know, France is 100 years ahead of us. Absolutely fascinating stuff. I, I loved it. So, yeah, that, I mean, it was great. It was a great degree. It meant that I got to spend a year in the southwest of France. And Where I, did you go over there? Toulouse? Well, oh, sort of, yeah. actually, I say Toulouse, I was about an hour and a half north of Toulouse. I asked the British Council when they uh, arranged my placement, could you please send me to something that's not urban? Because I was living in central London, so I wanted to go somewhere a little bit rural. And I got my wish, because they ended up sending me to a tiny little village called Gordon in uh, southwest France, six miles from the nearest town. And I was, yeah, I was living in a farmhouse for a year which was wonderful, terrifying. I joined the local rugby team to try and make some friends. I joined the local choir to try and make friends. And it was absolutely brilliant. It was very scary. I remember Dad driving me to to France and he was going to leave me there with my car. So he got on the train and I put him on the train at Gordon 
when he was going off north up to Paris and just that feeling then of feeling that I was 20 or 21 and just feeling oh my goodness I am really really on my own here now but I loved it it was so much fun it was a brilliant year and it was it's the best way to learn any language so you graduate what did you do then couldn't find a job in 2008 really couldn't find a job really struggled and I was one of those graduates that came out with my shiny 2-1 and thought great where do I go and really struggled because it was the 2008 was the year of the financial crash people weren't recruiting and it was really hard I think I remember keeping track of applications that I put in for various things and I even applied to be a recruitment consultant and didn't get that and thought oh god what do I do and and really did not know what to do so I remember, yeah, that was quite, well, just tricky. So I ended up temping. I would temp in the civil service and still looking around for jobs. And I was on one particular website and I saw an advert that said research and project officer in the household of their royal highnesses, the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall and thought, well, not in a month of Sundays am I going to get even an interview for that. But I was so used to just applying for everything that I bunged an application in. Lo and behold, I got an interview and I was invited to go to Clarence House for uh, this interview and then I was invited back for a second interview and that was on the 23rd of December 2008 and then I got a phone call on Christmas Eve to say we'd like to offer you the job and I was, yeah, I I went to become researcher to the Prince of Wales in his private office which was the best Christmas present I think I've ever had. And what did that uh, consist of then? What did the job... I I was one of his researchers. We were all based in the attic of Clarence House, which had been converted into nice offices. And we were responsible for organising his engagements. So I worked on food and farming. And um, I was responsible for working with the Duchy of Cornwall to help organise whenever the prince went to to do a, a visit in the duchy or his away days that he would do in Cumbria or Derbyshire or Cornwall, wherever it might be. Anything that had a rural agricultural theme, um, myself and the, the private secretary that I worked for would, would organise that. Uh, it also meant drafting some of his speeches and, and, and obviously sending them up to him for him to, to change and look at. Um, but it was an absolutely amazing job that, that took me all the way around the country, took me to the most fascinating places. I spent a week on board the Royal Train. I organised for the Prince of Wales to go onto the pyramid stage at Glastonbury. And it just exposed me, not just to Prince Wales and that world, but also to farming and agriculture, which I didn't have much experience of before. But it ignited a real passion for farming. The Prince of Wales himself is, a, is a, an excellent farmer. He has his own ideas, and, and I think he has been phenomenal in, in the way in which he's led the conversation. We would not be talking about sustainability if it weren't for him. Um, <clears throat> but it really just you know, set me off on a, on a career that would last about another 12 years because that then yeah, led me into other jobs in, in, in farming and food and, and I've absolutely loved it. Did you have much interaction with him personally? Every now and then, yeah. I, the, the phone would ring and it would say HRH study and your heart would stop and you would um, uh, you know, you'd hope that you had the right answer. But yes, I mean, every now and then you sort of bump into him on the stairs or something and, and, and that was great. I mean, I, I, I didn't really engage with him all that much, but he was absolutely lovely to work for, very kind, very sympathetic. He always wrote lovely notes whenever you, know, you might have been going through a, a difficult time. I remember my friend, um, another researcher, her... Uh, 
parent, I can't remember if it was a mother or father, but uh, her parent passed away and the Prince of Wales wrote lovely notes to her and, and asked to see her. So he was incredibly kind to work for, had some high standards that you, you, know, you need to make sure that you reached. I remember once writing a briefing for the visit and it was a really long day of engagements. This document was about 15 pages long and somewhere on page 11 I'd said, and then your Royal Highness will meet so-and-so, so-and-so, who is the chaplain to, to wherever. But I'd spelt chaplain as in Charlie Chaplin, no, not A-I-N, and he'd put a big circle around it and, and underlined it. So he read absolutely everything we wrote. Uh, but no, he was, he was great to work for. I, lo- I loved it. And so was the Duchess as well. She, she was absolutely wonderful. It was, yeah, it was a, a heck of an experience when you're 22 years old. And then you went on to work for others in the farming sector, like yeah. BNFU. Yeah, um, I did a spell at DEFRA first and then left there to go to work for the NFU, so some sort of gamekeeper turned poacher in a funny way. But that was when I um, went to work in Brussels. So I spent a bit of time with DEFRA going out to Brussels to negotiate some of the common agricultural policy reform on behalf of the UK government. And then went to work for the NFU in Westminster to begin with, but then they sent me to Brussels again for three years. So again, I was able to use my languages. Um, I was living abroad in another country for yet another time, not really knowing anybody. But again, absolutely amazing experience because I was not just doing really interesting work, campaigning on behalf of English and Welsh farmers, but over a really interesting period, during the period of the, the renegotiation and then, of course, our referendum. Um, so that was a, a great job, which I absolutely loved. And the NFU were, it, it is a wonderful place to work, and I'm, I've got really close links to it and lots of friends who still work there. So at this time and through these years, were you still involved with the Conservative Party? No, no. I couldn't have any involvement with politics at all, either working for the Prince, DEFRA or the NFU, because all of those institutions are, are staunchly apolitical, particularly the NFU, I have to say. You know, I had to... Um, sign something that I wouldn't you know campaign or, or get involved so um, I took a step back from it and I, I was quite far removed from things because I saw everything going on in in Wales and I noticed that everything was changing the balance of power between Westminster and Cardiff was starting to shift with different bits of legislation that transferred powers to the assembly but I wasn't really keeping up with what was going on so I, I sort of came back I left when I was 19 and then I came back to Wales when I was 32 and so much had changed it was it was an enormous period of change. So when you were doing this work in Brussels, mm. what opinion did you form of the European Union as an institution? I was always a bit um, frustrated. There was just a latent sense of permanent frustration because we would be um, working on, on, on rules that directly affected agriculture. So a really good example is what's called the greening requirements, which doesn't affect Welsh farmers because we don't have, well it does, but not to the degree that it affects the arable farmers in the east of England, for example. We have more beef and sheep here. But that stipulated that you needed to grow three different crops in order to boost biodiversity. And we looked at that as an NFU and said, well, We totally understand the ambition. We want to do this, completely support you. But the way it works for us is to grow three crops in rotation. So we'd have one one year, one another year, one the next. Could we do that, please? And the answer came back from the EU, no. We'll do this as a union. We will, you know, it will be one firm rule. So I didn't really understand that, why why they wouldn't accept the, the flexibility. By contrast, you've also got those mythical ideas about 
you know, straight bananas and, and, and things like that. And you think, it's not like that, but it is inflexible. It, Weren't they just um, lying stories made up by Boris Johnson? I don't know if, if, if it's a lie. I think it's a, it's maybe well, a sort of funny, it, funny, convenient story. But, you know, it's it certainly, there, there was material there that added to the case that leaving the European Union would be good for, for the UK, for those people who were, who were saying that. But it, it was frustrating that the European Union was very inflexible towards different methods of farming, different ways of interpreting those rules. So I, I did always have a sort of permanent, I don't want to go so far as say irritation, but yeah, always trying to, it, it was always like pushing treacle up a hill. You know, I remember trying to get certain pesticides reauthorised and the weight of the European Green Lobby was enormous and we were trying to say no look hang on can can we just make sure that we we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here that we don't create 10 problems by solving one so we were trying to sort of get in and, and show our evidence and, and and show our concerns but we were drowned out by environmental lobbyists from the other uh, other end of Europe which again was really quite hard work so how did you vote in the referendum I voted to remain. I voted yeah. to remain because I felt on balance, better the devil that you know than the devil you don't. And I was there on the day of the referendum and I remember being in my flat in Brussels with a couple of mates and we were all quite confident that we would stay. And then I remember really clearly about five o'clock in the morning, Brussels time, the penny dropped, we are not and we're going. And, you know, the phone instantly blew up and I had to get to the office double quick hadn't been to bed and there was a strike in Brussels at the time and it took about an hour to get to the office when I only lived you know two miles away but I remember really clearly that on that day thinking we have to respect this decision there is no way we can go back from this now we've made a decision we've uh we we cannot go back on this because it will create a permanent fracture in our relationship between the public and government and that has to be sacrosanct for me. I, I really can't go along with any idea of a second referendum or people's vote or, or, or even stop Brexit altogether, which I find deeply, deeply wrong. We have to respect that referendum decision. What I find when I speak to conservative mm. politicians or people associated with the Conservative Party at a very high level as well mm. is when you ask them directly... Do you think the UK will be economically better off outside the EU? They always prevaricate. They never mm. say yes or no. Yeah. Do you think that if we leave on the terms that Boris Johnson has negotiated and in spite of the almost unanimous view of um, respectable economists that the UK will actually be worse off do you think that that's wrong, or do, do you do you think you know better than so many economists? I absolutely don't. I think undoubtedly there will be a period of change and uncertainty, and that will bring with it difficult situations. I don't believe that things will be as bad as some people have liked to portray. I think there are institutions, people and organisations, who feel terribly guilty that they were caught napping on the referendum and were not clear enough about why we should stay. And as a result, they've gone to the other extreme and are, are egging up or bigging up any negative consequences. Undoubtedly, things are going to be a bit bumpy. 
things go, could well be bumpy for a few years. I think what government has to do is be really clear about what could happen. You know, if, if X happens, we will do Y. I actually don't think as a Conservative Party we've been clear enough about that. You know, I certainly talk to sheep farmers in the constituency that I'm hoping to represent. And uh, I don't think we've been clear with, our, with them about if we leave, this is how we're going to support you. So that's what I've been trying to do. And I've been talking to Michael Gove and Theresa Villiers about that. But I, I do think that, yeah, there is undoubtedly things are going to be a little bit rocky, but we will get through it. And we need, if we're clear enough about what we as a government can do, that will assuage people's fears. But I also think people who maybe didn't do enough during the referendum ought to recognise that a decision has been made. Do you think it would be a good thing to come out of the single market and the customs union? I do. I do. I think there's real opportunities for us. I think, you know, particularly looking at agriculture, which again is my, is my experience, I think there are there is a lot of things that we can do once we are free of certain state aid rules. I don't pretend it's going to be easy. And, you know, I look at people on my side of the party or, or my side of politics who say it's going to be easy and I think you know we've got to be really careful about that we can't pretend that we would just be able to walk into a free trade agreement but our deal means that we can start the negotiations for a free trade agreement so let's get on and do that right now let's agree a deal ideally before Christmas and, and, and get going because you know I do think there's some some, some positive opportunities. Obviously, there are people who are very concerned about the potential for tariffs mm. um, affecting land exports, yeah. very specifically. If those tariffs were imposed, it would wreck the Welsh farming industry, wouldn't it? If those tariffs were, it, things would be challenging. But I think it's really important to look at what those tariffs mean. It's a negotiation. So if we have X percent tariffs on one particular commodity the EU will have x percent tariffs on another commodity and we need to look at all of those and say well you still want to sell us champagne and parma ham and German cars and we still want to sell you Welsh beef and lamb so how do we make this work for everybody Um, I think it's you know we should be really clear about that that it isn't just a straightforward you know we we leave and, and this is what we can expect it is a negotiation and, and we, are going to, we are going to want to trade with Europe in the same way that they're going to want to trade with us. It's, it's a market of 500 million people. That's where the majority of our lamb goes. But also let's remember that we have an opportunity outside the EU to boost our own self-sufficiency. We're only 61% self-sufficient. You know, we, we import the rest of that food. So let's see if we can find ways as well of selling more to our own market at the same time. And also the opportunity to sell even further around the world. So it's one absolutely crucial, essential market that we need to be make sure that we have excellent access to, but there's an awful lot of other work that we can do. Haven't UK ministers said that they would seek not to impose tariffs on imports for food? I'm not sure if we've made that firm commitment. I haven't heard that. I understand it's, uh, it's a contingency in the case of no deal, but with a, and of course I'm bound to say, with a Conservative government on the 12th of December, we have a deal that takes no deal off the table. So yeah, with, with the deal that we have, we can start the important bit of working towards a free trade agreement. But no deal could come back on the table if the negotiations break down, and not much time has been given for the negotiations to take place. You're absolutely right, and that's why I'm all the more frustrated that Parliament has wasted time when we could have left and we could have been talking about a free trade agreement. Of course, no deal could could rear its head again 
towards the end of the transition period, we've got to do everything within our power to stop that. But it would be so naive of Parliament to take no deal off the table, to, to bind our hands again. It's the most powerful negotiating chip we have. And to say we're not going to play it is like walking into a state agent saying, well, I'm going to buy a house at whatever cost. It, it, it's not... It, it doesn't make any sense. And we need... It's the only thing that we have changed in the last six months that has shown the EU that we are serious about how we go forward. The primary reason, of course, why uh, Theresa May's deal wasn't agreed was because lots of Conservative MPs wouldn't back it. That's the case, isn't it? Uh, yes. Um, and, and again, you know, it's a, it's a frustration for me and one of the reasons why I wanted to put myself forward that um, everybody needs to lay down their red lines. You know, Brexit was agreed on by 52 to 48%. Now, to me, that says that no one has a mandate for any firm, hard idea of Brexit, whether that's remain or leave. So everybody needs to lay down their red lines and recognise that we have to compromise uh, on this deal. So, And, and that's what's happened. Um, it's just a, a frustration that, that Parliament has not wanted to, to make progress. What would you say to somebody living in Brecon and Radnorshire who works for a manufacturing company which may be owned by some overseas investor who invested in the constituency because they wanted access to the single market and once we're out of the single market say, sorry, I'm off to the Netherlands mm -hmm. and therefore your job is gone. What do you say to people like that? Well, I think what we need to look at is what this deal gives us, which is certainty. And, you know, I don't want to repeat the line, but going for a free trade agreement means we are will able to negotiate the best possible access to the single market. But we voted to come out of the European Union. And to me, that does mean leaving the single market and the customs union. So we need to get this deal done and move on to that free trade agreement, which will give us the best possible access to a single market, so I think it's you know pointed towards that certainty. Fortunately, businesses haven't so far been as clear as to say we're going to withdraw. I know there is nervousness, but again, the nervousness comes from further prevarication and further kicking the can down the road, whereas we want to just get on with it. But the European Union has made it clear that if uh, we don't have freedom of movement, they're not going to allow us uh, easy access to the single market. Isn't that a major problem? What is what is the problem? with freedom of movement. Um, I mean, all the experts, and I know that Michael Gove doesn't like experts, <laughs> although he apparently relies on them himself uh, in his own department, <laughs> but uh, all of the uh, studies that have been done have shown that immigration um, has actually been a benefit to the UK economy. Why is it that the Conservative Party has this hang-up about immigration? I don't know if it's just the Conservative Party. I think we've seen in recent years that everybody is concerned about the availability of our public services and making sure that there is almost enough to go around for everybody. So I think what uh, it, it is a cross-party issue. Freedom of movement is, is important because we need people coming here to do all sorts of jobs, from meat processing to fruit picking to, to, to working in care institutions and, and, and the NHS. So it's absolutely crucial. But we need to make sure that it's balanced that we are welcoming to everybody who needs to come here and wants to come here in order to get a good job. So what we will do with our system is make sure that people are coming here for a job and we will look at a, a new system of immigration where it's, it's points-based, 
bringing the best and the brightest, but also looking at the need in our industry. So I'm really pleased that the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Scheme has been extended. So we are, we are looking at that. I think it's, it is a sort of cross-party issue that we need to make sure that we have a, a, um, an appropriate level of immigration into the country. Do you think this idea of having a £30,000 minimum wage is ridiculous? I wouldn't say ridiculous. I think it's important that we encourage skilled people to come here. But I was with the Prime Minister yesterday at the Royal Welsh Show and the meat processing manufacturers made it really clear that that salary cap is going to be prohibitive for them in attracting the labour that they need. Um, and the Prime Minister absolutely took that point and, made, and, and reassured them that we would be finding ways to make sure that we get all sorts of people coming here for all sorts of jobs. And that's absolutely what we need to do. The election is nearly upon us. Yes. You've been doing a lot of campaigning. Mm-hmm. Is it your sense that you're going to win? Well, signs look good. Uh, I think, are we going to win nationally? I'd say yes. Um, I think, you know, it's looking towards a Conservative majority. On my side, in Brecon and Radishire, I am seeing lots of people switching. Of course, we had a by-election in the summer. And there was a, a strong degree of protest voting, either because people were unhappy about where we were on Brexit or unhappy about our candidate in that by-election. Um, so I'm finding a lot of people switching either back to the Conservatives or back to the party that they used to vote for uh, before they uh, protest voted, if I could put it that way. So, yeah, signs look good, but we are out knocking every single door all day long. It's a shame that it's uh, it's dark at four o'clock, otherwise we'd be out even longer. But, you know, we're taking nothing for granted. You know, it's such an important election. We really need to deliver a parliament that's going that's determined to do something. So, fingers crossed. Would you like to be a deferred minister? Um, I... I, I I, I mean, I'd just like to be a member of Parliament first. I think let's try and let's try and do that first. But um, absolutely, I think you know, I'd love to work more closely with the Welsh government and um, get them to understand how things really work in rural Wales. You know, for example, we've got a, 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 a bovine TB approach here that just does not work. Bovine TB is spreading throughout Wales. It is the scourge of the cattle industry. And the Conservative government in England got a grip on the disease by, by introducing a cull on the disease in the wildlife. And four years on from that cull, we're seeing a massive reduction in the incidence rate of, of bovine TB. So I would love to work more closely with the Welsh Government and get them to see that evidence and, and have a bit of backbone about them and, and, and actually get a grip on the disease. As a woman candidate in particular, would you be happy for Alan Kens to be reappointed as the Secretary of State for Wales, given his um, involvement in the Ross England affair? I think there's an investigation that's ongoing. Uh, I don't know when that is going to conclude. If Alan is re-elected and that investigation is ongoing, then no, I don't think it would be appropriate for him to return to Cabinet. I think we need to allow that process to come to its conclusion. And above all, I want to see us learn some lessons from that. You know, I think there is a victim at the heart of that situation who has been through a traumatic ordeal at least three times now. And I think we need to make sure that we put things right for the victim at the centre of that case. Thank you very much, Fajr. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Mm-hmm.